The word of God in the 121st Psalm. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot stumble. He who watches over you will not slumber. Yes, he who watches over Israel will not slumber. He will not sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will watch to keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going from now to eternity. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Two weeks ago, on Reformation Sunday, you learned about the headings of the Psalms. With total confidence in the powers of your memory, you will not be required to sit through that information again this morning, except to know that the psalm you just listened to, Psalm 121, is another one of those psalms that comes equipped with a heading. The heading to this 121st psalm is very brief. It gives you just one little piece of background information before you get to the psalm itself. The heading says that this psalm is a song of ascents. A-S-C-E-N-T-S. The first of 15 songs of ascent that are grouped together in the book. Now there are a lot of theories about what exactly is a song of ascent? What does that mean? So one theory is that these were the psalms that were sung in the temple while the priest was climbing the steps to the altar. So they were songs for the ascent of the priest. Another theory is that these were songs sung by travelers. That they were songs not just for formal worship in the temple, but also for informal worship as people were on journeys. And that is the theory I like the best. I think these probably were songs that were sung by people while they were traveling, especially while they were traveling to Jerusalem. As you see, Jerusalem is the high point in Israel, so every trip to Jerusalem is an ascent. Also, these psalms are full of language about going to the temple to worship the Lord. And of course, the temple, the main place to worship the Lord in was in Jerusalem. And on top of that, there's just a lot of language in these psalms about traveling, being on a journey. And that's what makes this psalm so practical and relevant for all believers of all generations, because although it is a cliche, it's true. We're all on a journey. We are all traveling through this life. As Psalm 121 opens, it's easy to picture a traveler making his way uphill to Jerusalem. And as he does, he lifts up his eyes and he sees in front of him yet one more range of mountains. And he asks the question that is only natural for a weary-legged journeyman to ask. Where does my help come from? How am I going to get over this mountain? Who is going to help me get to the other side? A very important question to ask and answer because going over mountains in Israel at that time was risky business. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Where did the man in that story get robbed and left for dead? 
in the mountains right around Jerusalem because the mountains were full of nooks and crannies for bad guys to hide in, also full of wild predators, and the trails were very uneven, very easy to sprain an ankle or wrench a knee. Now, usually, travelers crossing mountains, they walked in big groups to try to reduce some of these risks. But this particular traveler is all alone. Notice he does not say, we lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? He is on his own. And I know it's very difficult to imagine, but he doesn't even have a cell phone. So if he gets lost, he can't call for help. There's nothing for the authorities to ping if he goes missing. He's all by himself and asks, where does my help come from? As we travel through this world, we all have challenges that rise up in front of us, serious challenges that look to us like mountains. We ask, whenever we come up to a mountain, to a challenge in life, where does my help come from? Maybe the challenge that you see most clearly right now is a schedule that just has way too much stuff on it. Or maybe the mountain you see is a challenging child or an impossible coworker. Maybe it's bills you can't pay. And you know, if you still get paper bills, it's interesting after a while, if you don't pay them, they do actually start to look like a mountain. Or maybe your biggest challenge is fading health. Now, all of these mountains are serious and all of them are challenging, but the most difficult ones are the ones you have to climb on your own. The ones where you have to ask in the singular, where does my help come from? Maybe you have to climb a mountain on your own because your friends and your family are not there for you. Or maybe they are bodily there, but they are checked out, or their focus is somewhere else. Or maybe it's a mountain you have to climb alone because there really is nobody in your circle of family and friends who have ever confronted a challenge like this one before. So they cannot relate. They don't know what to do, what to say, to help you, to encourage you. So we all have mountains we have to climb that make us ask, where does my help come from? But the hardest ones are the ones you have to climb alone. Of course, there are a lot of different ways that you could answer the question, where does my help come from? One possible answer to that question is, nowhere. Nobody is going to help me. But you know what? That's okay, because I'm tough. I'm the real deal, son. I climb mountains on my own. I eat mountains for breakfast. I'm not getting help for anyone, and I don't care, because I'll do it myself. Another way to answer it is, well, no one, so I'm just going to give up on this one. I'm going to turn around and walk away. This mountain's too steep for these tired old legs. I'm gone. I'm out of here. So if you answer the question, no one, there's two directions you can go from there. You can go to this proud arrogance, or you can go in the direction of, like, wimpy despair. A lot of other ways that you can answer the question, too. Maybe one other one worth thinking about is, well, you know, I don't know where my help is going to come from on this one, but eventually, hopefully, I will get help from somewhere. 
Eventually, my parents will notice this crisis that I am going through, and they will help me. Hopefully. Hopefully, my boss eventually will notice me slumped over in my office chair and give me some relief. Eventually. See, I don't know who, I don't know where, when, or how, but sooner or later, somebody's going to come along, they're going to pick me up, and they're going to carry me over this mountain, or they're at least going to hold my hand and walk with me over this mountain and encourage me. I hope. A wise man told me recently, hope is not a strategy. And in the context, he said it specifically, hoping that other people are going to come through for you is not a strategy, because sometimes they do, and when they do, it's great, but often they do not. So if you answer the question, where does my help come from with no one, you can either then go toward pride or despair and giving up, or you can hope your help is going to come from somewhere. That may leave you abandoned on the road up the side of the mountain. There is a much better way to answer this question. It's the way that the psalmist answers it, not once, not twice, but five times in the space of just nine verses, a pretty short psalm. Say to yourself, well, this is the easiest question I'm going to have to answer all day. Of course, the answer the psalmist is going to give is God. Our help comes from God. Yes, but not specific enough. My help comes from the Lord. The Lord, specifically, is identified as the source of help for his people. That name, the Lord, specified the God of Israel. And it distinguished the God of Israel from all the other gods of all the other nations around Israel. Because all the other gods, they actually needed help from people in order to function. They needed human beings to pray to them and sacrifice to them and for some reason to harm themselves and to do crazy dances. But the Lord, the God of Israel, he is different. His name means I am. He is totally independent and self-sufficient. He does not need help from anyone ever. Instead, the Lord is the one who helps his people. And he can help them over any mountain, through any challenge, because he is the maker of heaven and earth. He made the whole universe, including this tiny little speck we live on where these mountains rise in front of us. They are no challenge to the one who said, let there be, and called the entire universe into existence out of nothing. If he has the ability to do that, he has the ability to get you through a packed day, or illness, or financial stress. He will not let your foot stumble. But the Lord is more than just strong and independent. His name, I Am, it also teaches you that he is present that when you face a challenge, the Lord is there, and he is awake, he's alert. He who watches over you will not slumber, he will not sleep. Yes, he who watches over Israel will not slumber. So you are told this three times in a row, that God is present at your side, and he is awake and alert. Generally speaking, why do we feel the need to repeat the same thing, the exact same thing, three times in a row? Isn't it either because the thing is very important or because the thing is very easily forgotten? Or both? And in this case, 
I think it's both. See, when Christians come up to a challenge, I don't think anyone would be audacious enough to, to actually accuse the Lord of being asleep on them. But in our hearts, we do accuse the Lord of being disengaged, uncaring, uninterested in what we are going through. The serious mistake Christians make in their thinking when they find themselves at the base of a mountain is to think this way. Well, yeah, to me, from my perspective, this is a serious thing. This is a mountain to me. But what could it possibly mean to God? I mean, come on, he's up in heaven. You know, you see those pictures from space that look down on earth? The hills and the valleys look pretty much the same from the heavens, don't they? So what, what could this really mean to God? He's so big and the world's so big and there's so many people with so many problems. He can't care about this. He's not awake to this challenge I'm going through. And we actually might mistake that kind of thinking for humility, but it's not humility at all. It's just wrong. It's a, it's a sinful underestimation of God's love and care for his people. Why would the Lord, the God of Israel, be awake and at your side when you are going through a challenge? Why would the maker of heaven and earth care about what you are going through? Because you are Israel. Now, even back in the Old Testament, Gentiles were allowed to join up with Israel, God's chosen nation. If you are a Gentile and you put your trust in the Lord God of Israel and you walked in his commands, you joined Israel, God's chosen nation, his chosen people. And the New Testament also teaches with precision that it still works the same way. If you trust in the Lord and his promises, it doesn't matter who you are, you become part of Israel. St. Peter was writing to a group of Christians that were Jewish and Gentile, and he called them all God's chosen people, his holy nation. That is Israel. And St. Paul writes that everyone who trusts in the Lord and his promises becomes Abraham's family by faith. You are the spiritual Israel. You are one God has chosen to trust in him and to trust in his promises. And that begins and ends with the most important promise God ever made. To that Old Testament nation of Israel, God promised a Savior who was coming to be their suffering servant. A Savior who would come and take the guilt of all their sins onto his own back and suffer the punishment for them in their place. And he promised them a Savior who would not be abandoned to the grave, but would live and reign on David's throne forever. This is how much the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, cares about you and everything you are going through. He promised and sent his son to walk perfectly in God's law for you. To suffer for your sins and to die for them in your place and to rise so that you will rise behind him. And you are Israel. You are one God has chosen to trust in him and to trust in that saving promise. So, yes, the Lord is going to be on the ball when you are at the base of a mountain. Yes, he is going to be there to help you over the top. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will watch to keep you from all harm. 
often wondered when I read this psalm, who ever got struck by the moon at night? I can understand the danger of the sun during the day, especially in the Middle East where this psalm was written. The sun is a serious danger during the daytime and you need shade, you need protection from that sun. But the moon, whoever got hurt by the moon at night? But I think that's the point. As we make our way through life, there are some things that we see very clearly as threatening and dangerous because they are. That's the sun by day. And those clear, dangerous things, those are what cause us like children to run to the Lord and grab onto his leg and hold on tight for protection. And he protects us from the sun by the day. But then, you also have things that you don't ever think could hurt you. You don't perceive them as any threat whatsoever. That's the moon by night. But the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who perfectly watches over his Israel, he knows better. He knows better than we do the things that could hurt us, and he protects us from all kinds of harm. The sun by day, the things we see as dangerous, and the moon by night, the things we don't ever even think could hurt us. But then if all that's true, how do we explain the attacks of sun and moon that do come to God's people, that do reach Israel in this world? They come to God's people sometimes because when the Lord watches over our life and protects us, he has in his mind more than just protection and welfare for our lives in this world. See, this world is all we see. So we fall into this very short-sighted view sometimes of thinking that the 70 or 80 years we have in this world, that is life. That's the whole thing. But the Lord who watches over his Israel, he again knows better. There is a lot more to your entire life, your whole existence, than just the seven or eight decades you get into this world. And the Lord watches over you with the whole thing in mind. Your life in this world, but way more importantly, the life to come. The Lord will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going from now to eternity. Now there is, of course, one mountain that all of us are going to have to climb. Unless Jesus comes back first, we are all going to have to climb the final, the ultimate mountain at the end of our life in this world. And nobody's going over the top of that mountain with you except the Lord. And you might think, well, hopefully I'll be surrounded by my family. They'll be holding my hand. Or maybe I'll go down in a jumbo jet with 300 other people. Then I won't die alone. But your death still belongs to you and nobody else except the Lord. He is going to go over the top of that mountain with you and hold your hand so you reach the other side, his side, safely. The Lord is going to go over that final mountain of death with you because Jesus' death on the cross for your sins is yours. On the other side of that mountain, there is life waiting for you because Jesus' life, his holy life, is yours. There's a resurrection waiting for you because Jesus' resurrection is yours. But in order to get over that mountain, you have to hold on to the Lord's hand all the way. You have to trust in the Lord and his salvation until the very end. And Satan is a fighter who does not give up. He keeps throwing punches until the echo of the bell. 
And the doubts inside of your own sinful heart are not going to let up until the very end either. In order to make it to the other side with the Lord, you need a faith that is bulletproof. And it is with that ultimate view of life and death that the Lord watches over his Israel in this world. So yes, he keeps all kinds of harm, the sun and the moon, away from us. And we don't even recognize it because the harm doesn't happen to us. So we can never fully appreciate or thank God for all the harm that he keeps away from us. And then he allows some to come so that we will hold on to him tighter and tighter, look at his love in Jesus more and more. And it's also that we will hold on to him all the way to the other side of that final mountain. On Saints Triumph and Sunday, we celebrate the final victory of all those believers who have successfully climbed that final mountain and reached the peace and the celebration of heaven. And we thank God that all those who have gotten there are never going to have to climb any mountains anymore of any kind. They have only peace and celebration at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it's also good today for the saints who are still on earth to look forward to the day when we are going to join them in that heavenly peace. Psalm 121 very likely was sung by travelers on their way up to Jerusalem to praise the Lord in his temple. And that's also who we are and where we are going. We are travelers on our way up to the new Jerusalem to praise God forever in his heavenly temple. So at the base of every mountain, look up to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He watches over his Israel and will help you over every mountain, including the last. And then we reach our Jerusalem, where we join all Israel, all the saints, in triumph. Amen.